Thank you for listening to Devoted. We meet every week on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. at Calvary Chapel, East Anaheim. texting back and forth and your phone's going crazy for like an hour at work and yeah you, you can't respond one way so that won't happen uh, but it, I would highly advise you guys to opt into this so that way you can know what we're doing and uh, and be a part of it but to get those messages text CCEA devoted all one word when, when you type it in the, the spell check is going to make it too so make sure it's one to the number 59769. So the number you're texting me to is 59769, and the message is CCEA devoted, all one word, and you'll get our text alerts. All right. So Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And God, we do thank you that you gave us this word, that you gave Paul the revelations the, of the mysteries that you gave him and uh, to, to pen this book, Lord, and what it tells us about who you are. I pray that we would see all the riches that we have in you, that we would take those and we would possess them, Lord, and we would actually live them out. We'd use them in a way that honors you and that loves our neighbor and uh, promotes our sanctification, God. I pray for everybody's here, that, that everybody that's here, I pray that you would speak to them. We believe in the gift of prophecy. We believe that you're able to speak in a supernatural way where your word impacts and penetrates each one of our hearts in an individual and personal way and changes us, God. We believe that you're right here and that you want to show us new things about who you are. And when we see you, we'll be like Isaiah. We'll be undone, but we'll receive your grace and we'll be able to go out to minister for you, Lord. And so come and have your way with us tonight. Your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So typically we have a, an outline like uh, Pastor Bob gave us downstairs fill in and kind of stay on track where we're at. And, uh, that way you can know how many more uh, minutes until I'm done. 
But uh, I didn't do that today because we're kind of introducing a book and I'm kind of presenting things a little bit different than I normally would have. But we'll be back to that next week. So if you want to take notes, you just fill it in or however you want to take them. But I would encourage you to take notes as the word reads. But the book of Ephesians is a, uh, a great book. It, it really is one of the masterpieces of the New Testament. John Calvin, one of the reformers, called the book of Ephesians the crown jewel of the New Testament. It was the book, out of all the books in the New Testament, that stood out to him, that reached heights that other books couldn't reach. Kyle uh, Snodergas, uh, one of the scholars, he said this, pound for pound, Ephesians may well be the most influential document ever written. Within the history of Christianity, only the Psalms, the Gospel of John, and Romans have been so instrumental in shaping the life and thought of Christians. But all three of these works are much longer than the few pages of this letter. Ephesians has justly been described as the Switzerland of the New Testament, the crown and climax of Pauline theology, and one of the divinest compositions of man. The explanation of the gospel and of the life of Christ provided here is powerful and direct. If read receptively, it's a bombshell. And I would agree with him there. When we look at Romans, it's Paul's most systematic and complete presentation of the gospel. He lays it out uh, just so systematically and, and, and covers every detail in, in just such a masterful way, right? Uh, well, Ephesians is the most majestic uh, presentation of the gospel from the Apostle Paul. Uh, Romans gives kind of the breadth of the gospel. Well, Ephesians is going to give us the height and the majesty of the gospel. It's going to reach peaks. Uh, and, and we're going to see things about the glory of God in Ephesians that we don't see anywhere else in Pauline literature. But why did I choose uh, for us to study the book of Ephesians? Why is this, you know, where we're going? We were doing this study that I was calling the, the Truths We Confess, where we were going through the Westminster Confession of Faith and going article by article and using that kind of as a guide to uh, kind of topically study all the major doctrines and practices of the church. And, and I was loving that, right? We were having a great time. I feel like it was really beneficial for us. It was a blessing. But I, I felt like God wanted to do something new. And, and I felt like he was calling us to the book of Ephesians. And the first reason uh, I wanted to do that was I, I wanted to get that toward, toward expositional uh, teaching, expository preaching, teaching verse by verse through a book of the Bible. And uh, I think the other word was great, but, you know, this is uh, kind of what Calvary Chapel does. But there was another reason, a, a more important burden on my heart that made me or led me to the book of Ephesians. Lately, I've been feeling like, like God's, God wants more. Like God wants more from me. Like God wants more from you. Like God wants more from devoted. Like God wants more from Calvary Chapel and Stan and I. Like God wants more from really the church as a whole, his universal church. I guess I feel like I'm not living up to what I should be living up to as a Christian. I feel like the church really isn't living up to its potential today. And I've been having this, this burden. And I know it's not. You know why? 
Because in Ephesians 3.20, Paul says this. He says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we could ask or think according to the power that works within us. He wants to do more than what we could imagine. More than what we could pray for. But is that happening in our lives? Are we seeing God go above and beyond every prayer request that we make? Are we seeing God do things that just blow our minds because we can't imagine you know, things that big happening. Things like we read about in the book of Acts. Things like we're going to see in this movie, the Jesus Revolution. Do you think Chuck ever imagined that this church that he took over that was called Calvary Chapel that had 25 people in it would turn into 2,000 churches all over the world in his lifetime? That's above and beyond anything we could ask or imagine. But why isn't that happening for us? Why aren't we experiencing that today? Because we're not living up to all that God has for us. This world's suffering. We're not having the impact that God wants us to have as salt and light in this world. And, and, and beyond that, we're, we're missing out on a tremendous blessing. We really are. And the book of Ephesians is going to help us to realize that. It's going to help us to realize our potential. It's going to help us to realize the blessing that God wants to give us. You see, because the book of Ephesians is a book of resources. It's a book of blessing. It, it, it really is. It's a book of riches. It's all about the riches that we have in Christ. All the resources that we have in Christ. Everything that's available to us. And it tells us how to achieve that. It tells us how to access those. And then it tells us how to use those in a way that's going to be profitable, in a way that's going to bring glory to God, in a way that we are going to see Him do beyond anything we can ask or think. You know, a few weeks ago, I got this letter. I meant to bring it today, but I forgot it on my desk. From this lawyer in Canada. And he said that I had a relative, or he thinks I might have had a relative, of the same last name, who died. And he's been looking for a relative of this person who died so he could give this estate of $18 million or whatever to. And so he said he wanted me to respond to him. And it didn't really matter if this guy was my relative or not. He just needed somebody to fill out the paperwork so he could give this $18 million or something to, right? And, uh, yeah, that's stupid. That's, that's obviously a scam, right? I don't have that. But, but imagine, you know, if, if those riches, those resources were available to me, and, and this guy was going to help me realize this, and how that would change my life. Well, yeah, that was a scam, but the book of Ephesians isn't. And God is telling us he's got these resources that are available to us, these riches that are absolutely going to change our life. We just have to access them the right way, and that's through Christ. So, so we have riches, <laughs> riches that we possess in Christ. In 1 Corinthians 3.21, and then again in verse 22, Paul tells us that all things belong to us. Does all things belong to you. You, you? you see, you are a co-heir with Christ. So that means every single thing that belongs to Christ in the spiritual world, realm, in the world, belongs to you as well. And these are some of the riches 
in, in Ephesians are, are, are some of those things. And, and it's going to tell us how to access them. You see, these riches include both personal riches and corporate riches. There's riches that we're going to learn about in Ephesians that are going to help us. They're going to bless you. They're going to comfort you in, in tremendous ways. They're going to impact your walk with Jesus in ways that you can't even imagine. It's going to give you confidence of your salvation. It's going to progress you in your sanctification. It's going to help you in your relationships. You know, the, the book of Ephesians really talks about, it, it gives relationship advice for every single relationship that you have in this world. It, it, it really does. It starts with your relationship with God. And then it's your relationship with other believers. And then your relationship with non-believers. It speaks about that. It speaks of marital relationships. Husbands loving their wives. Wives submitting to their husbands. Wives respecting their husbands. It speaks of your relationship with your kids, if you have kids, or if you ever do have kids. Right? Husbands, uh, fathers don't uh, bring your kids to wrath. Raise them up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. It, it, it speaks to those relationships. It gives insight into our relationships between uh, the, the worker and the employee, and the employer. It gives even uh, insight into our relationship with the spiritual realm and, and the demons and the angels. It tells us how to relate to every single person, every single entity that we're ever going to meet in this world. Ephesians has a practical application for us. So it's going to have a profound effect on our personal lives as individual Christians. But not only that, but it's going to help us corporately as well. See, the church is a huge theme in the book of Ephesians. It, it really is. Ephesians is really about the mystery of the church. We're going to talk about that more in a few minutes. We're described as a body. We're supposed to have a unity. The church is supposed to have the answers that this world needs. Answers to questions about sexuality, answers to questions about ethics, things like abortion, things like homosexuality, LGBTQ issues, and uh, transgenderism, and uh, the, you know, the family and worker-employee relations. It answers all of these. And, and the church is supposed to be the one that's guiding the conscience of the nation, that's speaking truth to the nation, that's saying what is right and wrong and living it out and showing what, you know, living the truth out is and, and how blessed the blessing that comes from God for that. But as a church, we're blowing it. And because we're blowing it, this society and this nation is feeling the effects of it. You see, if we want to see revival, we want to see the, the nation start changing and, and turning back to God, it's going to start with us, realizing who God is. Realizing who we are in Christ. Realizing the blessings we have in Christ. Living those out as an example to this world so that it's attractive. So they say, yeah, I want that. Yeah, I can see why that's wrong. Yeah, I need to make a change in my life. You see, so it's going to affect us personally in a, in a very great way. But it's also going to affect us corporately as a church. And then beyond that into society. It's going to start changing the people and the people groups around us. You know, don't be surprised when we're studying Ephesians 
when you start to experience a greater degree of God's blessing in your life. And when you start seeing that same blessing start to pour over into the lives around you. You start to see other people's walks with God start to grow. People start to get excited about the Lord, start to experience the Lord's blessing in their life. You see, if you want to see your family members liberated, if you want to see your coworkers set free, if you want to see your friends start to get excited about the Lord, give yourself to the study of Ephesians. Let it start to work on you, and I guarantee you, you'll start to see it in them as well. So that's why I said I want to study Ephesians. I've had this burden, and I see the answer to that burden right here in the book of Ephesians. And I hope it will be for me. I hope it will be for you. I hope it will be for this group, for this church, and even beyond. But who wrote Ephesians, right? One of the questions we talked about was the context. Why is context so important? Right? We need to understand things about around the passage so that when we read the passage, we can get the original meaning. We understand what the original author was saying to the original recipient because that's the original meaning. And that's where the, the truth is. And that's where, when we live it out, that's where the blessing is going to come from. And part of that context that we're looking at is the author. Who wrote it? Well, unless you're in seminary, the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Ephesians. All throughout church history, that's been accepted all the way back to the early 100s A.D. Up until the 1900s, everybody agreed that the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Ephesians. The first one claims it. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Why do I say, though, unless you're in seminary? Well, I was reading yesterday, I probably read 50 pages about people uh, in seminary that say that Paul didn't write Ephesians. In fact, one study showed that 70 to 80 percent of current seminary teachers of higher criticism or, or textual criticism, these are people that look at the books of the Bible, they look at the evidence given, and they dissect it and critique it and try to come up with the errors and things like that, so then they could, you know, reinterpret it and things like that. I think their whole motive is to come up with new things that they could write about so they could sell books, to be honest. But, yeah, they say that Paul didn't write it. And I say that they're missing the golden rule of hermeneutics. The golden rule of hermeneutics is if the first sense makes good sense, seek no other sense, lest you come up with nonsense. And that's what they have come up with is absolutely nonsense. But why do they say Paul didn't write Ephesians? Well, they say that normally Paul's letters are filled with personal greetings. And he doesn't greet anybody personally in the book of Ephesians. They say that it, 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 it's too close to the book of Colossians. You know, 25% of Colossians is in I'm sorry, 33% of Colossians is in Ephesians, and 25% of Ephesians is in Colossians. And they say that they're too similar. And so somebody had to write both, or somebody had to copy from Colossians, Ephesians. They say that there's, this isn't personal enough to be one of Paul's letters. They say Paul spent multiple years in Ephesus on his second missionary journey. He would have known the people. How come he isn't greeting any of them individually? In Ephesians 1.15 it says, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which 
exists among you and your love for the saints. And I heard of your faith. They're saying if it was really Paul, he would have he would have known their faith. He would have known them. But I think there's a perfectly good explanation for this. You see, the letter of Ephesians is what they call a circular letter. You see, it wasn't written to an individual church. It was written to the churches of Asia Minor. And it was sent by Tychicus to, to go and to deliver it to these churches. And actually, when you look at the old manuscripts, over half of them, it doesn't say Ephesians. It just says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are faithful in Christ. And there was a blank there. And each church he would take it to, they would fill in that blank. And it was addressed to each one of those churches. So, so, yeah, Paul was in Ephesus for two years. And, and yeah, in Acts 19.10 and 11, it says, During the place of those years, all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. God was performing extraordinary miracles at the hands of Paul. But isn't it unrealistic that he would know everybody from every single one of the churches throughout Asia Minor? That he would know everybody in, in Asia Minor? that had heard the word that had gone out, even from the people that he was teaching. He's taught in the school of Tyrannus. Those people must have gone out and shared what he was teaching, and they shared what he was teaching. It wasn't Paul who filled all of Asia Minor with the word of the Lord. It started from Paul. And so there's a perfectly good reason why there isn't these individual greetings in the book of Ephesians. And maybe he's writing the book of Ephesians and the book of Colossians at close to the same time. And so those same things that are on his heart are going to both groups. In Colossians, he's writing to a, a particular church, and so it has some particular uh, instruction for that church, for what they're going through. So that's why there's a little bit different between Colossians and Ephesians. You see, so there's a perfectly reasonable explanation why these letters are different, why they don't, why Ephesians doesn't look exactly like Paul's other books. Also, Ephesus was made up of many small house churches, right? So, so yeah, Paul ministered there, but it's not likely he would have ministered to every single person. Now, the theory that they have is that one of Paul's students later on uh, basically made a forgery and said that it was Paul who wrote it because he wanted to honor Paul. But I, I think this hypothesis is unattainable because of the way that letters were delivered in the ancient world. If I was going to deliver a letter, say I'm going to write a letter and have it delivered to Ryan, the person that I'm going to have deliver that letter is going to be somebody who's acquainted, knows me, and knows Ryan. So that way, when he delivers the letter, he could say, yeah, I got it from Joe, and I'm bringing it to you. And he could come and tell me that he delivered it to Ryan. It's a way of ensuring the authenticity of said letter. Furthermore, the book of Ephesians is speaking highly of truth. So speak the truth in love. 
he's honoring the truth. It talks about putting on the belt of truth. Do you really think that one of Paul's disciples is going to try to honor so much, he's going to exhort people to be in the truth, to walk in the truth, to share the truth, to speak the truth, and then lie about who's actually writing the book? It really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. So we have really good reason to believe that the book of Ephesians was written by Paul himself. But I, I want us to think about this for a minute. Paul wrote the book of Ephesians in prison. Paul was in prison when he wrote this book. Look at Ephesians 3.1. It says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ, on behalf of you Gentiles. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, exert you to walk worthy of the calling which you have been called. You know, Paul was in prison for a few times, so we have a few different options of when this was written. Right? He spent the night in a jail in Philippi after he uh, exhort, or exercised the demon out of a demoniac woman, right? And he was beaten because her owners couldn't make money off of her anymore, and they were throwing him with socks, and God showed up and delivered Paul and Barnabas and saved the jailer and all that. I highly doubt that these books were written during that time. Uh, we have another option. He was in Caesarea, and, and he was jailed there for a time after he was arrested for starting a riot in Jerusalem. They had arrested him in Jerusalem. He found out that there was a hit on his life. He let the guards know, and they moved him to Caesarea. And it was there in Caesarea Maritime where Paul spoke in front of Felix and Festus and shared the gospel. That's a possibility. That means it would have been in the late 50s A.D. But more than likely, what we're talking about is Paul in house arrest in Rome. After he made it to Rome in Acts 28, he was in prison and uh, for a good few years. And so we believe that the book of Ephesians was written by Paul in Rome, in jail, between 60 and 62 A.D. And it was from this jail cell where he was that he wrote other books. He wrote uh, Ephesians, he wrote Philippians, he wrote Colossians, and he wrote Philemon in prison. And this is extremely, extremely interesting to me. You see, I think Paul saw being imprisoned as an opportunity to spend time alone with God. He saw as an opportunity to minister to believers in different ways, you know, writing letters and whatnot. And he saw it as an opportunity to preach the gospel to people he'd otherwise not be able to. No doubt Paul would have rather been free. He would have rather been out planting churches and, you know, traveling around and things like that. But that wasn't his circumstances. God had him in prison, and he saw that, hey, God's sovereign, and God has a reason for me being here. And he decided to make the most of it. He decided to see, hey, how can I minister to those churches? And he started writing letters. And one of those letters that we have is Ephesians. He said, hey, I can't evangelize the nations like I want to, but I could evangelize the prison guards that God is bringing to me. And he did. And we know in the book of Philippians, it says that the, the Praetorian guards, these soldiers that were chained to Paul, were getting saved. And he, he saw it as an opportunity to spend time with God. And because of that, he was given revelation from God. He was given the, the mysteries 
of the kingdom of God, the mysteries of the church. And so I want to challenge us to think about what is our prison? What is the thing that we don't like in our life? What is the thing that we would want to change that we wouldn't want to do? But maybe God has us there for a reason. Maybe God wants to do something new, something unique in and through us during that or because of that. You know who Lauren Daigle is, the musician, right? Well, she had never sung before until she was in high school. In high school, she got severely sick, and she was stuck at home for three years, couldn't go to school, and she hated it. She wanted to go be with her friends, but she wasn't allowed to leave the house, and she absolutely hated life. But it was during those three years that she was stuck in her house that she learned that she had a voice, that she could actually sing. And she started doing that, and she had a talent for it. And, and she realized that she could glorify God through that. And now she gets to travel all over the world singing songs about Jesus, bringing glory to Jesus, encouraging the saints. Because she chose to look at this prison that she was in as a, a new opportunity to do creative things for the Lord. It's really crazy if you think about it. Because Paul's most effective ministry might have come from that prison. It really might have. Think about how many saints through the years have read the book of Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, have been ministered to that and, and had that change their lives. That wouldn't have if Paul hadn't have written those when he was in jail. That might have been the most effective ministry that he ever did. He might have gotten the most grandiose visions and revelations that he ever got while he was in jail. You see, because God says that he takes the things that the world means for evil and uses them for good. Romans 8.28 says that God works all things together for our good, for those that love God, who are called according to his purpose. So God uses Paul and blesses Paul with great revelation during this time of his incarceration. I also believe that it's during these prison times that Jesus is the closest to us. That we're able to experience Jesus in a way that we're not outside of those circumstances. Now think about this. Right? During the book of Acts, there's times where Jesus literally appears to Paul and stands next to Paul and encourages Paul and comforts Paul and puts his hand on Paul's shoulder says, hey, it's going to be all right. This is going to pass. I got good things for you on the horizon. You know what the circumstances of all those things were? All those times where the Lord literally appeared to him and stood next to him and did all of that? He was in prison. He was in jail. He was somewhere that he didn't want to be. And I guarantee you that Jesus is going to be closer than to you if you let him during these times, because he's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. When we're hurting, when we're full of grief, that, that's when we're going to be the most like him. That's when he's going to be the closest to us. Paul says that he prays for the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. I mean, how many of us would, would love that, right? When we're having the worst day of our life, when we're freaked out, when we're scared, when we're anxious, to have 
literally Jesus appeared to sit next to you and wrap his arm around you and say, hey, it's going to be okay. Well, he wants to do that. He will do that. But we need to be in his word. We need to be living out the blessings and the riches that he has for us. So I ask, what's your prison? What's going on in your life that you just want out of? But Christ is saying, no, I want to be right here with you in it. I want to bless you and use your unique circumstances as an opportunity to do new and unique things for me. Maybe you don't have a prison right now. Praise God. But you will. You sooner or later, you're going to be in one of those prisons. And I guarantee you, if you let, if you let them, Jesus will be there right there with you. So Paul wrote Ephesians. He wrote it from prison. But who did he write it to? What's Paul's audience? Ephesians really is to all believers. We talked about this. It says to the saints who are at Ephesus. Right? But that Ephesus isn't there. This was a circular letter. And it was left blank for each church to fill it in. It probably went around the whole circuit of churches there in Asia Minor. From Ephesus to Smyrna to Pergamum to Thyatira to Sardis, to, Philip, uh, to Philadelphia, to Laodicea. And it's to all the churches. It's true that Ephesians is one of the only epistles that doesn't address any specific issues in a specific church. And so this is one of the letters where you don't have to have any specific background information about what's going on in that church to be able to take the letter, read it, understand it, and apply it. For instance, in 1 Corinthians, uh, it helps to understand the, some of the problems that were going on in the Corinth church, things that were happening in the city of Corinth that were impacting that church. Well, in Ephesians, it's, it's not talking about any specific problems that any church has, so we don't have to have those difficulties in interpreting any Christian at any time could pick up the book of Ephesians and read it and understand it and apply it directly to their life. So Ephesians applies to every Christian. It's one of the most contemporary books in the Bible, right? Because we don't have to understand these manners or customs to be able to get the meaning of the book. Any believer in any age has been able to pick up the book of Ephesians, read it, understand it, and apply it. This is why Ephesians has been one of the greatest blessings out of the entire church age. You know, Ephesians is an epistle, but it, it reads kind of like a sermon. It, it, it really does. It's full of things like worship and praise and thanksgiving. And as we read Ephesians, we should grow in these areas of worship and praise and thanksgiving. It's encouraging us to do these things. Paul's praying that these would grow in our life. And as we see the riches that God has for us, and as these riches are applied to our life, we should be filled with worship and thanksgiving and praise. You know, the key verse in Ephesians, kind of the key theme of Ephesians, is in chapter 3. In verses 1 through 6. Let me spend a little bit of time here. Uh, he says this, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, 
If indeed you heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, here it is, that by the revelation, by revelation, there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief, about which when you read, you could understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. Here's what this mystery is, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Right? So here Paul tells us that there's a mystery. In verse 5 we learn what a mystery is. Biblically, a mystery was something that other generations weren't made known of. But in the New Testament, it was revealed to the apostles. So it was information that the Old Testament believers, Old Testament saints, didn't have that was revealed in the New Testament. That's what a mystery is. And the mystery that Paul is unfolding in the book of Ephesians, we see in verse 6, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So Ephesians is a book that Paul wrote to explain a mystery. And this mystery is the mystery of the church. The mystery of the church age. In the Old Testament, it talks a lot about the kingdom. The kingdom that is to come. The prophets talked about a kingdom. The people were excited for the kingdom. They anticipated the kingdom. But there were elements to the kingdom that was a mystery to them. A part of the kingdom that they couldn't see. It's kind of like a mountain range. Have you guys ever experienced this where you're, you're looking at a range of mountains and you see these peaks of mountains and from a distance it looks like they're there one right after another. But as you get closer and closer to those mountains, as you start to go through those mountains, you realize that there's these huge differences, distances between each of the mountains. But from a distance, you couldn't see that. And that's kind of how the Old Testament prophets viewed the kingdom of God. They could see the Christ coming. They could see uh, him setting up the kingdom. They, they could see all these things that the prophets were saying was going to happen. They just didn't see that there was this gap of time in between the two. They didn't see what God was going to do through this mystery. They couldn't see the coming kingdom Messiah. They could see the coming king. They could see the Messiah. They could see the kingdom set up. But they couldn't see that time in between. And Paul was the one who was given the revelation of the mystery. Right? This should encourage us. Right? It, it really should. Because we have more information about the drama of redemption than anybody else throughout the history of the world. We have more information about the kingdom of God than any other group of people that have lived in the history of the world. We know more about the kingdom of God than the most righteous people in the Old Testament. People like Noah and Job and Daniel, who are explicitly called righteous in the Old Testament. We know more about the kingdom of God than the most powerful kings in the Old Testament, people like David and Solomon. We know more about the, most, uh, about the kingdom than the most prolific prophets in the Old Testament, like Isaiah and Daniel. We're the most prolific miracle workers like Elijah and Elisha. 
When we think about the, the revelation that's been given to us and the things that we know about the kingdom, we're, we're the most blessed people there are. We know more about God than anybody who's ever lived before us. And it's right here. The question is, are we going to take the time to read it and study it and apply it? And if we will, we will be blessed. But if not, we're really just heaping judgment on ourselves. But there's this mystery. Christ, the king, came to his people and he offered them a kingdom. This is true. Christ was a real king. Right? And he came and he offered a, a real kingdom. What did John the Baptist say when he started his ministry? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What did Jesus say throughout his ministry? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There was a real king in front of them offering a real kingdom. Herod recognized him as a king. Remember, he tried to kill all the babies that were two and under when he heard that the king of the Jews had been born. The wise men, they came from the east. They recognized him as a king. They brought gifts to Mary and Joseph. Or how about Herod at his trial? He recognized him. He talked to Jesus as a king. Or Pontius Pilate saw that Jesus was a king. Remember on his little placard on his crossbar, it said, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Even the guy that was dying next to him, the thief on the cross, recognized him as a king. He said, hey, remember me when you enter your kingdom. Jesus is the king of kings, and he came to offer a kingdom kingdom to Israel. But Israel rejected their king and that kingdom that Jesus was offering, and the kingdom was put on hold. There was this parenthetical put in between the kingdom of God, and that it was it had to wait till the millennial kingdom. So now there's this parenthetical kingdom, a kingdom made up primarily of Gentiles and not Jews. That was the mystery. That was in the Old Testament what they couldn't see that there was this separate kingdom in the middle that was made up of primarily Gentiles, where Jesus was going to be the king of the church. See, the, the kingdom that was different than the kingdom that the Jews were looking for, they were looking for a physical kingdom. They were looking for a kingdom with an, a, a ruler sitting on a king in Jerusalem. This is a spiritual kingdom with Jesus as the king sitting on the throne of people's hearts, ruling and reigning from our hearts, accomplishing his will from our hearts, and not a throne in Jerusalem. That kingdom's going to come. That's the millennial kingdom. That's in the future. Right now, we're in the kingdom of the church. You know, if you look at all the blessings that the Bible talks about is that the future millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth, and you compare all the blessings, all the details that it says about that kingdom with the church age, we realize that it has all the same blessings, all the same details. Except what is done physically in the millennial kingdom is done spiritually. It's done in the hearts of the people here in this age. There's many other or mysteries that fall under this greater mystery of the kingdom that Paul is talking about. But they didn't realize that there was a church age, so they couldn't realize that there was mysteries within the church age for them to understand. But there was all kinds of mysteries. There's the mystery of the indwelling Christ. 
There's a mystery of Babylon, the mystery of the unity of believers, the mystery of the rapture, the mystery of the bride, the mystery of the unbelief of Israel all throughout the New Testament. And these are mysteries that belong to the church age. These are mysteries that were given to Paul, things that nobody had understood before that were given to Paul for him to explain to the church. I mentioned earlier that Ephesians was a book of blessings that we have in Christ. And this book of blessings, this really is a book of blessings and holiness. Right? The word grace is used 12 times in the book of Ephesians. The word glory is used 8 times. The word inheritance is used 4 times. Riches is used 5 times. Fullness and filled are used 7 times. So Paul wants us to experience grace, glory, inheritance, riches, and the fullness of God. Reading, studying, and applying Ephesians to our life is, is how we're going to realize those things. How these are going to come to fruition in our life. Three times in Ephesians, Paul speaks of riches. He speaks in Ephesians 1.7 of the riches of his grace. In Ephesians 3.8, he speaks of the riches of Christ. And in Ephesians 3.16, he speaks of the riches of his glory. And all of these riches, the riches of his grace, the riches of Christ, and the riches of his glory are available to us in Christ. You see, that's the key in the book of Ephesians is in Christ, what we have in Christ. When we're in Christ, all the riches, the glory, the honor, the blessing, that is ours. This is also a book of fullness. Right? We, we don't just get some blessing. We get the fullness of God's blessing in Christ. In Ephesians 3.19, it's that you may be filled up with all the fullness of God. In Ephesians 4.13, it's the, to measure of the statue which belongs to the fullness of Christ. In Ephesians 5.18, it's uh, to be filled with the Spirit. It's literally the, uh, we're to be filled with God, we're to be filled with Christ, we're to be filled with the Spirit, we're to be filled with the fullness of who God is. We're to experience the fullness of God in our lives. We're to have the, the abundant life. What did Jesus say? I come so that you may have life and have it abundantly. That's what God wants us to have. He wants us to have eternal life. He wants us to experience His life through Christ. And Ephesians is going to teach us how to do that. But this is only in Christ that we experience the fullness of God, that we experience eternal life. So here's there's kind of a, an overview of some of these riches, some of these blessings that are going to be available to us in Christ. What's the, the outline, kind of the format of the epistle to the Ephesians? Well, in the first three chapters, we have theology. It's all about who God is. And then the last three chapters are, are very practical. It's telling us how to live in light of who God is. The first three are theological. The last three are ethical. It's God's part, and then the last three is our part. You have God's sovereignty. You have who God is, what God's doing, the first three. And then you have our responsibility, the last three. And those two are always going to go hand in hand. The way that we're to live, what we're to do, the way that we're to think is based on what we think about God. And the way that we think about God should impact the way that we think and live and, and what we do. You see, all theology is practical. It, it really is. All our practices must be informed or influenced by our theology. And our theology needs to influence our actions. Our actions need to be dictated by our 
theology. So when we want to know what to do, how to live, how to make a decision, we need to look at what the Bible says about who God is. In uh, chapter 1, we learn about our identity in Christ. In chapter 2, we learn about this unity that we have with believers. In chapters 4 and 5, we learn how to mature in Christ, what that looks like. In chapter 6, we learn how to fight for Christ. We learn what warfare for Christ looks like. Some pastors have outlined the book with a sit-walk stand, right? Because in chapter 1, you're constantly seated with Christ in the heavenlies. It's explaining who you are, who, who Christ made you to be. And then in chapters 3, 4, and 5, we're learning how to walk with Christ and what walking with Christ looks like. And then in chapter 6, we're learning how to stand up and fight for Christ. Let's look at it real quick. I'll finish up with, let's look at verses 1 and 2 again real quick. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So this letter is following the ancient letter writing practices where it puts the author first. It's Paul. Paul from the tribe of Benjamin, named after the greatest of the tribe of Benjamin, King Saul. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was a Pharisee. He was the greatest scholar under Gamaliel. He was the best and brightest that Israel had to offer. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was a persecutor of the church. He was the chief persecutor of the church. He was the one going out arresting and persecuting Christians and trying to stomp out this Christianity. And then it was on the road to Damascus where he was going to arrest and to persecute Christians where the Lord met him and commissioned him to be an apostle to the Gentiles. If you think about it, his life really parallels Moses, right? Because he, he has all the benefits, all the blessings growing up. He's steeped in the the riches of, of, of where he's living. But he had to be brought extremely low, right? He had to be lowered out of a basket back down out of the window of Damascus. And he had to go spend time in the desert. And then God was going to use him. God was going to show profound mysteries to him. He was going to give him great revelations of who he is. He was going to perform great miracles through both of them. But he, he comes to Damascus and he starts preaching. It gets too hot for him in Damascus. And so he goes off into the wilderness. He's in the Nabatean wilderness. He's with Christ. And it gets too hot for him there. And so he goes back to Damascus. And then, it, it, you know, there's people in Damascus that want him dead. There's people outside Damascus waiting for him to leave so they could kill him. In the middle of the night, they lower him out of a basket. Right? He ends up going to Antioch and he pastors there with a handful of other guys. Until the Holy Spirit says, separate from me Paul and Barnabas for the work of missions. And then he goes out and he starts the greatest missionary enterprise that the world has ever seen. And God uses them in amazing ways to be an apostle to the Gentiles. He gets to deliver the mysteries of the kingdom to the Gentiles. And here he's going to share some truths kind of in a, a double-barrel fashion, right? two at a time. He's the apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of the Father. And it's not enough just to be the apostle of Christ Jesus. 
right? No, the, the, the truths that he's sharing here in Ephesians are too grand. He's the apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of the Father. Right? He includes that second witness that the facts could be established by. But he's an apostle of Christ Jesus. This is probably the greatest authority there is. If you think about it, there's only 14 people that could claim that authority. There's the 12 minus Judas, and they added Matthias, and then they added Paul. And they were commissioned to go out and to write scripture, to, to, to teach the apostles' doctrine, to, 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 to pray and to teach, to study, to reveal the will of God, to perform miracles. They were given mysteries and revelation. And that was, that was Paul's duty. And he's saying, hey, I'm here and I'm speaking from that authority as an apostle, as an ambassador of Christ, one who was sent out by Christ himself. You know, the book of Acts, it really affirms Paul's apostleship. If you read the book of Acts, it's really interesting. The first four chapters is primarily about Peter. And the last part of the book is about Paul. And when I did a class with Apostle Paul and, and his letter to the school of discipleship, I had them read through Ephesians, or I'm sorry, the book of Acts. And on one side of the piece of paper, write down all the miracles that Peter did. And on the other side of the paper, write down all the miracles that Paul did. And they were all astonished. They came back to me. They're like, they're the exact same. Every miracle that Peter did, Paul does in the book of Acts. And I said, what do you think that means? And the answer was that Paul is just as much an apostle as Peter. Paul has the same authority as an apostle as Peter. And that's the authority that he is writing from. He is standing in that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. But that's not all. He's by the will of God. It was the Son's purpose and it was the Father's will to commission Paul to be an apostle, to receive revelation, to minister to the Gentiles, to record the truth of Ephesians for us. By the way, the actions of the Son and the will of the Father are always the same. What did Jesus say? I always do the thing that pleases the Father. I always do the Father's will. I only say that the, Father, the things that the Father tells me to say. I only do the things that I see the Father do. Everything that Jesus does is in line with the will of the Father. And here it was Jesus commissioning, sending the Apostle Paul, and it was the Father's will to do so. So that's the authority. There's a double authority for why Paul is writing this, why we could believe the truths in the book of Ephesians. By the way, Paul was an apostle by the will of God. That was his calling. It was God's will calling him to be an apostle, to, to serve the church in that way. And I want to encourage you with this. Wherever God has you, whatever you're doing for a profession, wherever he has you serving in the church, you're doing that by the will of God. God has called you to that. It's a calling he has on your life, wherever you're at. And that's encouraging because that means that you can honor him in it, that you can glorify him through it, that he has a purpose for it, that he wants to use it to affect the kingdom. So there's the double authority, but there's also a double address to the saints. Right? Saints are, are hagias, are holy ones. This speaks of our identity. This speaks of position. You are in Christ, if you're in Christ, you are a saint. You are positionally set apart. 
You're not just set apart. You're, you're, you're set apart for service to Christ. That's the way Paul is identifying every single Christian as a saint. That's the way we need to think about ourselves. We need to remember that God calls us saints. We need to find our identity in our sainthood. Faithful in Christ Jesus. Here's our end, right? God calls us saints. That's God's side of it. Our job is to be faithful in Christ Jesus. What does it mean to be faithful? It's one who displays, one who exercises faith, one who lives by faith. Our responsibility is to exhibit and display faith. And notice how the book of Ephesians isn't written to the the pastors of the church of Ephesus, or to the scholars in Jerusalem, or to the king. No, it's to the saints. It's to the faithful. It's to me and you. God, through Paul, wrote Ephesians so that we would experience the fullness of his blessings for all Christians. So there's a double authority, there's a double address, but there's a double blessing as well. Grace to you and peace from God our Father in Christ Jesus. And it's grace and peace, the two twin truths of the New Testament. And it's always in that order, right? You have to experience God's grace before you can experience or receive God's peace. You can't have God's peace until you have God's grace. If you look at it, the letter begins with grace and it ends with grace. Chapter 6, verse 24. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an incorruptible love. Grace is our entrance into the kingdom and we need grace all the way to the very end. We never outgrow our need for grace. Really, all of the Christian life is about grace. In fact, the longer that we walk with the Lord, the longer that we live this Christian life, the more we realize that we're dependent upon grace. The more we realize we need God's grace. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, By the grace of God I am what I am. Grace is is careless. That's our biggest need. We need more grace. Peace, irene. Peace is the result of grace. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We're justified by grace through faith. And because of that justification, because of that grace, we experience peace with God. When we come to the throne of grace, we receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. And because of that mercy and grace, we experience peace. Peace is the end result of grace. When we're experiencing grace, we're going to experience peace as well. I might add that was the standard greeting. In the New Testament, it was grace to you. Paris. That's how they greeted people. In the Old Testament, it was through peace. It was shalom. You say, how are you? What's up? Or, What's up? You know, it's stupid. Right? We should be more theological about it. Hey, grace to you. Or peace to you. Right? Because when you say grace to you, you're, you're saying, hey, I long for God to be gracious to you. I long for you to experience God's grace. It's pronouncing a blessing on you. Or I want you to experience peace. It means so much more than what's up or whatever you might say. So there's so much riches in Ephesians. There really is. We're going to learn 
what these riches are that are ours in Christ, how to access them, how to use these blessings in a way that honors God, loves our neighbors, and ultimately promotes our sanctification. Amen? So God, uh, we do thank you for this letter. I thank you for the truths in it. I can't wait to just unpack these and see all that you have for us. We trust that you're going to do exceedingly abundantly beyond anything that we could ask or think. I thank you for everyone here. I thank you for the new people you brought, Lord. I pray that you just bless them, protect them, Lord. Just be with them. I, I pray that you bring us all back here next week. And uh, and I just pray that you're with us through this time, Lord. We love you. We commit our weeks to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, guys. Well, thanks for coming. You know, uh, if you have the time, I ask that you try to pray with somebody and have someone pray for you before you leave. But hopefully I'll see you next week or before that. But God bless you.